Welcome to the Marvel Events Timeline, the podcast that takes you on a journey through Timely, Atlas, and Marvel Comics, one event at a time. Here are your hosts, Travis Bowe and Brian Lockhart. Welcome back. We're here to, to talk about war. What is it good for? <laughs> There it is. Not even <laughs> 10 seconds into the episode. Well, yeah. It was that or heroes on both sides, and I knew that wasn't a good one uh, for yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's usually my go-to for, like, just war. Yeah. <laughs> that are the uh, Clone Wars episodes that always had that, you know, announcer right. voice intro. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the, the Onion. I had an article from our dumb history, and it was war, you know, that big war that on a headline but it just kept going yeah. on and on and on <laughs> that's what i think of yeah yeah we're gonna talk about the what we've been threatening to talk about for i don't know seven episodes now when artists go to war when uh folks like joe simon jack kirby stan lee and and many others you know leave the offices at timely comics in new york or, or wherever they happen to be working at the at the time, and they head overseas, or they stay in, in the country, apparently, <laughs> but uh, serve their country, no less. So, what do you say they trade their pencils in for uh, for <laughs> rifles? You know, yeah. So yeah, I think Brian's going to kick it off with uh, talking about uh, Joe Simon and kind of what what he did during the war, and uh, I guess. World War Two, to be specific, just in case <laughs> any of you failed uh, history. So, <laughs> yeah. So first off, we're going to get into the whole history behind World War Two and why it happened. No. All of it, <laughs> yeah. every detail. Yeah. Strap in, folks. Correct. This is part one of a of a seventy five part <laughs> series. And somewhere along the line, we might actually discuss comic books, but no. Um, yeah. So the comic book industry. You know, as we've talked about, and as everybody would be aware, is was is no, you know, there was no exception to them as far as being affected by the war. I mean, in every sort of way. I mean, there was rationing. You know, paper rationing was a thing. I mean, that's why. Yeah. That's why these comics from back in that era are so valuable today, because mm-hmm. not only were they considered disposable income, yeah, not income, disposable like entertainment, but it was also like. You recycled. You rationed paper. Yeah. They just didn't have as many that survived, and the war was a big part of that. And you know, I, I came across a couple of interesting little facts. It's like, like thirty percent of all printed material sent to military bases were actually comic books. <laughs> like, comic <laughs> books were like uh, became an important thing uh, for the troops because it was a big morale booster. Actually, sure. Like it was. Not only did the comic book industry do their part by sending their artists and, and writers to, to war, just like some were drafted, some joined willingly, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. just, just like the rest of the country. But the comic books themselves were used as a morale booster. And, you know, it literally said, like, despite the fact that they were known as, like, kids' entertainment, they were perfect for GIs. And they, they were actually, in fact, Veterans and GIs overseas were some of the primary consumers of comics during the war. Like, there was, like, a big boom then. Sure. A lot of them would read, like, these... I mean, there was obviously the superheroes, and the superheroes went to war, but there was also a lot of true-to-life stories, like 
Like the, they, like literally, like the army guys in in uh, in Europe would read about the Marines in Guadalcanal, and vice versa. Like yeah. the Marines would read about what there's going on in Europe, and like these, like Guadalcanal Diary was like one of the, um, huh. like big you know big comic, and there was also one called like USA is Ready, which was about the European theater. Okay. And these guys would, they were perfect because they could pass them around. You know, they put them in their rucksack. You know, and then again, this this goes back to the whole. Nobody was keeping these in good mint condition, yeah, hoping they're going to go to college <laughs> when they sell them when they're older. You know, uh, yeah. but yeah, they could fold them around, they pass them around, and it was, it was stuff like that. So, um, and in fact, I even saw one stat that said that not only would GIs like request um, comics in their for care packages, but they were actually sent over like almost like military issue the same way they would send cigarettes over. It's like, Hey, sure. each troop gets a cigarette and a comic book. And so that was like, yeah, yeah. it was just, just a way to pass the time for these guys. Makes sense. I mean, yeah, there's no quick, easy, shareable, you know, media and it, like, like a comic or a little pulp magazine. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you have to think about it too. A lot of these guys were kids during the depression when comics were first sure. starting and what did they do? They read comics. Well, guess a lot of these guys aren't much older than kids, you know, when they're go over. So, yeah. so here you are. You continue to read the thing that gave you a little bit of an escapist fantasy. You escaped your crappy depression life, and now you can escape escape your you know crappy, you know war. Foxhole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, I just I you know I, I found that you know pretty interesting. But yeah, of course. You know, sales of comics were very high during the war. In fact, uh, Timely Comics, I think during the war, they, their average print run was half a million per issue, and they were producing about five books a week. So, wow. I mean, they're doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's just one way that the war affected the, you know, the comic book industry for you sure. know, both positive, uh, you know, in a positive way, I guess. So, right. As we've already kind of stated, a lot of these guys that we've already talked about ended up in military service. Yeah. I mean, you know, I figured we'll just jump right into uh, one guy we've already talked about, and that is um, Joe Simon. Good old Joe. <laughs> so so Joe Simon, and a lot of the information I, I, I got on Joe Simon comes right from his mouth. Um, I do have his book, The Joe Simon, My Life in Comics, and he gets into a lot of this. I've actually researched some of this in the past and and not right from, you know, from articles and stuff. And a lot of the information does line up. So yeah. um, Joe enlisted into the Coast Guard in 1943. <laughs> a lot of these guys were like, I, they they wanted to get a jump on Uncle Sam because they were going to get drafted eventually anyway. So. <laughs> sure. So Simon tells a story. He had a buddy named John Beardsley, uh, who was an editor at Fawcett Comics. He did he did some editing of Captain Marvel, and they used to go fishing together. Well, I don't know who came up with the idea. If it was I think he said it was John. Um, they had this idea to take advantage of a wartime Coast Guard program that the you know program the Coast Guard was running at the time. Yeah. So they wanted to they meaning the Coast Guard wanted to acquire small civilian boats and as many as possible and as quickly as possible okay so if you donate your boat you can join the coast guard and you can come with your boat <laughs> so nice you know you'd be a captain of your own dinghy you know if you want so <laughs> yeah. well they thought hey we go fishing you know hey why don't we buy a boat together 
We'll donate oh, it and we'll go join the Coast Guard. And we won't get killed off right away. Because like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it's not it's not a bad plan, right? Sure. You know, you yeah. just hang around the shores. You know, you're not going to go overseas. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Simon does does note that later, a lot of Coast Guards did act. Coast Guard, you know, sailors ended up going overseas. Like the Coast Guard yeah. did go into some battles over in Europe and stuff, and they they sunk you know u-boats and stuff like that so sure they were involved but uh, you know he didn't know that at the time he said it was always looming you know the fact that they could yeah. get shipped over to do something a little bit more dangerous you know if these comics have taught me anything there are nothing but saboteurs you know and fifth columnists like just you know creeping around our shores so there's things to to safeguard against oh yeah i mean literally bump into them in fact we talked about namor you know, stopping, calling the Coast Guard and and having them stop the yeah. Germans building ships right there. So, you know, as you said, it's, we, we got proof. <laughs> so, yeah. well, so, all, so I guess before they could go ahead and do that, and I, I don't understand exactly how this happened, if um, he was already enlisted and then tried to do this whole boat program or if he was doing the boat program and then enlisted. But there was somebody named Martin Burstein, and he was uh, he was a writer for um, I don't know I've if heard we, the name yeah I think we might have actually mentioned his name because I've seen it in the comic before and we I think we kind of questioned who he was but I found yeah. out he was a writer uh, at Timely he wrote um, he wrote in the first Captain America first ten issues of Captain America and he also wrote in Red Raven Comics number one he had his stories in there so he was definitely around Simon you know because Simon and Kirby bolted after issue ten of Captain America. So right. he was definitely one of their guys. So, so apparently he was heavily into politics, and apparent and he used some of his contacts to get Joe Simon involved with some shore patrol horseback division or something of the Coast Guard because he knew. I that, saw something about him on horseback. Yeah, okay. Well, because I think we talked about previously that Simon used to go horseback riding with Martin Goodman's brother in Forest Park, Queens. So. Okay. He had mentioned so this you know Burstein basically got he's like oh he's a horse expert because <laughs> <laughs> he goes horseback riding occasionally right yeah you yeah know, leisurely <laughs> so um, he got uh, the Coast Guard rated him a coxswain which um, okay I've never been rated that I would very much like to be rated a coxswain <laughs> that's what we all strive strive for <laughs> one day <laughs> but yeah. uh, no that i had to look that up because i've heard it before but i, I didn't know what it sure. was it's a steerman yeah, yeah. on a ship okay and um and that made him uh the rank of a petty officer third class which for those of you who don't know uh coast guard ranks it's it's an e4 it's an enlisted man four equivalent to a corporal in the marine corps which I was so I was an E four. Joe okay. Simon and I were both E fours, <laughs> but he went nice. in. I, I had to I had to spend five years being E four. He just showed up <laughs> with a boat right. and a horse, <laughs> exactly, and a wooden rifle apparently. So <laughs> I'll get to that in a second. But okay, he was initially stationed at a barn Barn Barnegat. Uh, I'm gonna butcher it. For those of you in New Jersey, I apologize. You probably know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's Barnegat Lighthouse State Park. It's on Long Island, Be- you know, Long Beach Island, and it's near Atlantic City. And what they did is they um, basically the Coast Guard turned in like uh, one of these beachfront hotels into a, like a 50 man barracks where you know bunk bunk the whole house 50 guys. And they basically it was a it was a perfect spot 
for the Coast Guard to spot U-boats because it was it was kind of flat and there wasn't a lot of trees. So there there he was. But the problem is, is it wasn't like a proper boot camp. You know, they just kind of sent these guys out there and they're like, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in fact, when he got there, they didn't have enough weapons and ammo for all the guys to train with. They needed okay. them for real combat. So they just gave them wooden you know, dummy guns. They gave him toys, yeah. basically. <laughs> and that's how they trained for a while until they gave him sidearms, he said. And then eventually they got sidearms. So he basically was there, you know, stationed there for a while. Um, he had his own horse. He said he was very happy about that. Because what, a lot of times what would happen is civilians would donate these horses. And, in fact, he talked about one particularly mean horse that just would bite at him, try and kick him off. And, like, he could not train this horse. Um, yeah. And they said that uh, civilians would actually donate dogs to help with, like, patrol but a lot of times okay. what they do is like these were dogs that probably should have been put down because they were untrainable <laughs> and they're like oh sure. the, you know the coast guard will, you know and he's like these dogs were not he goes everybody was scared of them and <laughs> they would they would attack this the coast guard uh you know personnel so it's <laughs> it seemed like kind of a mess so one of the things though that um uh you know eventually happened with joe is he they gave him a sidearm and a jeep, and he basically just basically became shore patrol. Like he was just the shore mm-hmm. police with no training whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. And he said he mostly um, dealt with uh, drunk, you know, the guys getting drunk and just being drunk sure. and disorderly. Which, you know, I, you know, to tell a little personal story, when I was stationed at my training station uh, in the Marine Corps, it was a it was a Navy base. And we had one Marine liaison that would help train the shore patrol guys that would do they would they would pull duty and and they basically were the you know the MPs but they call them SPs shore patrol and okay. uh, one of the things that they had us do cuz we had some downtime they had about three of us go in there and we played out we acted out all these different scenarios mostly of us drinking and fighting and they would have to like <laughs> the 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 trainees would not know what we were going to do. Sometimes we'd just yeah. go limp and they'd have to, you know, pull us. Other times we'd be fighting each other and then start fighting them. And we'd have to, they would just tell us, it's like, do not let them arrest you. <laughs> it was a <laughs> lot of fun. It was, it was basically got the fight for, for, you know, and not getting any sort of trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. It was a lot. Yeah. But anyway, so Joe Simon was basically being one of these guys we were training, <laughs> you know, okay. dealing with drunk idiots. So, you know, that was pretty much his time on, on, uh, you know, this, this on Long Beach, basically. And, yeah. But he did say, though, he drove down in this, like, red Buick convertible that he had. And so he was kind of like the king of the GIs because he was one guy uh-huh. that actually had a car. So he's like, a lot of guys would try and get into some trouble. And he's like, I didn't really want to hang around the troublemakers. But <laughs> he did he did tell a story about it was kind of his responsibility. The guys would – they had they, one, of his, one of their commanders or, you know, somebody in charge of them would often visit a house of ill repute. So uh-huh. a lot of the, you know, the men would want to go like, hey, I want to go there, too. So Joe would drive sure, in sure. there. <laughs> he said he would drive in there and make sure they got back to base okay. Wow. But, um, yeah, I'm like, well, all right, you know, got to pass the time somehow, I guess. Uh-huh, so, yeah. Which, which I guess would actually parallel to some of the stories I have about Stan Lee later. <laughs> um, <laughs> or Dovetail, I should say. But um, so actually, so Simon eventually got, you know, he left left there when some new recruits came in. So really what it sounded like is like you signed up, you didn't really get a formal boot camp, and they just sent you off to start looking for boats, you know, for... Um, okay. So Simon tells this really good story of one guy one night, they're on patrol, kind of like when Captain America and Bucky were looking for... Um, what was it, the Lend-Lease, when they, when they were guarding the Lend-Lease boats, and then, you know, 
all hell breaks loose. Well, yeah, you know, there's this there's little young Coast Guard guys out there, and he spots a U-boat, and so he calls it in. And next thing you know, Simon's like the the whole area was like planes everywhere, American planes, yeah. just littering, you know, filled the air. Army paratroopers are paratrooping, you know, you know, parachuting in, and there's no U-boat, just nowhere to oh, be found. Man. So, so they think this guy is going a little wonky out there, being uh-huh. lonely, you know, being lonely out there, maybe want some attention. So they arrest him. They eventually oh, throw wow. him in the brig. Well, you know, if this isn't this isn't true to like mil- my military experiences, you know, here this guy goes to the brig for making a false report and and all that, and then they said some at some point they determined there really was a U boat out there. Huh. <laughs> so I don't know. He never says how they determined it, but it turns out there really was one there. And he he specifically mentions that there was a a U boat sunk a tanker off the coast of North Carolina okay. in 1942. So he said there was like they were on high alert for stuff like that, and yeah. I, it got me thinking because the way they converted this hotel into a into a barracks, there is a on the coast of North Carolina. There's Atlantic Beach, and I've been to this a few times. There's an old Spanish fort. It's been there for years, and they've rebuilt it, of course. But it's um it's called Fort Macon, and during World War II, that turned into a military barracks, and they had guys okay. out, like, literally stationed there during World War II looking for German U-boats. And I yeah. often wondered, if, like, reading that, I'm like, was that because of that sinking? You know, was it near sure. there? You know, just a little something there. But So eventually, he moves on to um, Curtis Bay, Maryland, uh, near Baltimore. That's actually where he kind of gets goes through his formal boot camp training, and there is, like, he, he gets, like, real training like how do you spot a plane or a ship via their silhouette you know and he, okay you know stuff like that and he said he also sure. joined the rowing team while he was there so doesn't get into too much about you know his time there but while he was there he would notice that there was on on the bulletin boards of the barracks there was a like a request for a need for combat uh people people to join the combat art corps and he's like, and it was part of the public information department. Well, that's a no brainer. I mean, yeah. he, he's like, he's already like, he's perfect for that. So he applies and I don't know, he doesn't say how, like what, but he said like they immediately respond to him and he's on his way to DC and he's going to the yeah. Coast Guard um, headquarters in DC. He makes his way to D- DC and he's paired up right away because he's, he is paired up with a New York Post or New York Times, I can't remember, um, artist or writer because he was like the only cartoonist in the bunch. Like everybody else was sure. painters. And one of the things okay. that they were having this division do, so everybody was competing for money back then. So they wanted good press meant like, hey, let's give the Coast Guard yeah. more money. So they would send <laughs> these painters or, or these, you know, combat artists on ships and they would like sketch the, the what happened during the war. Sure. Um, and then they would then it would go back to um, the newspapers, newspapers and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, Simon ended up making a comic book that was sold by DC. That was like his first gig. So it's like, again, they, they found out who he was and they were like, hey, we got a job for you. <laughs> yeah. And it was yeah. um, it was stuff called like True Comics and True Stories of the Coast Guard. And, and he did like a Sunday Funnies paper. And that, the, the, yeah, that one was called True Comics and that would appear in the paper. It was sent out for free and each military branch would get to tell it like each week so it would be a different yeah like it wasn't just coast guard but they had had these um rotated yeah yeah and but the stories that he made 
um, that he did during this during this time, because again he had contacts at DC and they decided to sell it. Some of it were you know its own books, but some of it was sold in Action Comics and Boy Commandos. So like okay. just these Coast Guard stories appeared in in uh, you know DC Comics and stuff like that. You know Simon did mention he he eventually like he considered staying in the Coast Guard, but. Because it wasn't, you know, you had fun and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't too bad for him. But eventually, I think it was around 1945 he is when he got out. But yeah, when he was in this, like, whole public information department, he actually met some very famous people who, you know, were also in his same company. And one of them was Sid Caesar. Um, okay. One of them was Caesar Romero, another Caesar. <laughs> huh. And Caesar Romero was already famous at that point. Like, I think, yeah. I think Sid Caesar was still kind of like just a Catskills guy, you know. <laughs> he wasn't the... Yeah, but I um, he even said uh, Jack Dempsey, former heavyweight boxer, was there. So it's just um, he he just he ran into a you know a few different people there. But yeah, uh, you know a bunch of celebrities at the time. But and and it, it kind of happens to, to some other people too. But yeah, but basically in 1945, he his tour ends and he just returns to civilian life. And that's pretty much what I have on Joe okay. Simon. Um, it's interesting, you know. It's interesting that some of the stuff that's popping up in the various Marvel comics with the Coast Guard and then the saboteurs is stuff that I guess is, is already happening, but it's not from their experience, you know? Right. But I guess maybe after they all come back from, from war, they will find out, you know, how the books start to change based on their actual having firsthand account, you know, yeah. firsthand experience with, with sort of thing. Oh yeah, for sure. So should I talk about uh, Jack? Yeah, let's let's hear about Jack. Is of of all the guys that we're gonna talk about, and all the guys that had, did their part, like there's Jack. The, the whole story behind Jack Kirby and his military service. Uh, the second I learned about it, has always fascinated me. And yeah. you know, I'm 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 really looking forward to you digging into it. So let's let's just dive right in. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm gonna start in 1954. Ten years after Jack Kirby goes to war, when uh, he and Joe Simon have founded their own comic book company called Mainline Comics, or Mainline Publications. And at Mainline, they put out four books, uh, In Love, Police Trap, Foxhole, and Bullseye. Like Bullseye Western something. And uh, I, I got this from the book uh, Kirby, King of Comics that Foxhole, no surprise, was a war book, written and or drawn by men who'd been there, done that. And Jack always signed his stories, uh, PFC by Private First Class, Jack Kirby, 5th Division, 3rd Army. According to Jack's wife, Roz, it was a book he loved. He would have been very happy to spend the rest of his life just drawing the war stories he told everyone all the time. And, uh... I looked up Mainline Comics and I found images. And if you just Google search, you know, Mainline Comics Foxhole, some of the images are just haunting. Uh, there's one where a soldier is writing a letter to his mother, and the letter says, Dear Mom, the war is like a picnic. Today we spent the day at the beach. But then you see the the soldier and the beach, and it's littered with dead bodies. You know, the soldier himself is... <clears throat> He has a gun slung around his neck. He's got a cigarette just hanging out of his mouth. His face is bloody and bandaged. 
and the one eye he can see out of just has this like thousand yards yard stare and it's it's a really incredible image and that's just one of the covers there are many more with similar just you know horrors of of war it's no surprise that this is from someone who'd been there you know so cutting back to 1942 uh, while the war's still going on you know uh, Jack and and Joe they have just left Timely Comics and are now working for DC on books like uh, Adventure Comics featuring the Sandman, uh, the Newsboy Legion over in Star Spangled Comics, and over in Detective Comics they uh, sharing a stapled spine with Batman uh, were Joe and Jack's uh, Boy Commandos stories. Um, Jack and Joe, they knew that they'd be going overseas or they knew that they'd be enlisted in, in some way. It's, it's inevitable. Uh, Jack had uh, received his draft notice and he requested a deferral as he was the sole support for, for he and his new wife, uh, Rosalind. And so Joe and Jack are just getting as much work done for DC as possible. You know, they're just working long hours, they're hiring on other staff uh, just to crank things out. And uh, from Kirby, King of Comics, said, uh, he and Joe began to work faster and faster, the goal being, as he put it, to get enough work backlogged that I could go to the Army, kill Hitler, and get back before the readers missed us. <laughs> I had actually heard, and I forget who had said it, but I think it was Donnefeld or one of those guys that was in charge of D.C. at the time, and they said when when war happened, they were like, "Hey, we need like two years worth of uh, covers and stuff." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they so they did. They they started like doing a lot of covers, especially. Right. Yeah, I got this from uh, from the website, great website, uh, KirbyMuseum.org. Jack said, "I was drafted June seventh, nineteen forty three. I found out the same way as everybody else. They sent a telegram. You get two free telegrams from the army." One to tell you you're drafted, and one to tell your wife that you're coming home in a casket. He said, Jack said, my card was stamped Navy. And then some guy came in and said, we need six guys for the Army. I swear it was stamped Navy, and you know, I feel to this day I was meant for the Navy. This guy came out, and being a loser I was, I was one of the six. So sure enough, Jack reported for duty on Monday, uh, June 21st, uh, 1943, and was shipped off to Camp Stewart in uh, in Georgia. And uh, Camp Stewart became a holding area uh, for Italian and German POWs from uh, some of the battles that were going on in North Africa. Hmm. And they were used for projects in the camp as well as construction and farming in the surrounding area. Just a little tidbit about uh, Camp Stewart. Um, there was a, a cute little section in the, in the Kirby Museum blog that uh, talked about how Jack was exposed to America for the first time. You know, he'd never been, I don't think he'd been outside of New York. Uh, he'd never been to the South, certainly, and he, he met Texans. <laughs> he was excited to, to, he met other Jews from, from Georgia and Texas that he didn't know lived in, in other areas of the country. So it was just a culture shock for him. And, you know, uh, Simon, I, I kind of glossed over that, but Simon had a similar experience. Not that he, you know, he, tra he traveled around at least um, as a kid a little bit, but he said so a lot of the guys they were stationed with were from the south, and especially because of the Coast Guard, a lot of people just assumed that because they knew horses. <laughs> so they were oh. from the south, they must know horses. But he said a sure. lot of those guys, 
they didn't know they didn't even know he was Jewish. They thought he was Italian. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, and he said, and honestly, there was a there was a, one of the guys they were with. He was a he was a gay guy, and he was yeah. um in the uh like he did chorus lines and stuff before. But he said <laughs> a lot of these guys like they thought there was something he they said quote unquote girly about him. He said, but they okay. never put their finger like Joe knew. <laughs> you know, he didn't oh, care. Sure. But like uh, yeah, yeah. he's like these guys couldn't like. You know, they, they didn't, you know, they, they just never seen, you know, stuff like that. They didn't have yeah. the frame of uh, reference. Right. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, these guys didn't have any, like, didn't have any idea. But he, you know, unfortunately he did talk about, he did get into this a little bit about the fact that the military was segregated. So there was actually, you know, no blacks in his command, but they would come onto base and, and do like kitchen things. And he was like, he goes, yeah, he goes, a lot of these guys didn't treat him very well. And, uh, Uh-oh. And he's like, he goes, that was the first time we really kind of saw, you know, that kind of like, I guess, I guess you just want to call it racism, you know, like he, he just, yeah, yeah. he just, he never really experienced it quite to that level before. And he said, mm-hmm. honestly, he goes, he goes, you know, and they, they kept it themselves. So he's like, but a few times he like was talking to him and he's like, if you're just like nice to everybody, like everybody's nice to you. Yeah. That type of thing. <laughs> like, so that's how, you know, he seems like he was a very like open guy about everything. Just like, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, whatever. Um, and I, I yeah. find that funny because nowadays I find the military is the exact opposite. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, just from my own experiences, it's like because everybody is so integrated, nobody gives mm-hmm. two craps about, you know, you're this or you're that, you know. Yeah. You know, you, yeah, maybe people make fun of stuff in the military they shouldn't make fun of, but it doesn't matter. Like you're it's I found that, it, you know, like I said, to be a different experience. But back then, he was sure. like, well, these people, you know, had never like intermingled before. And yeah, it, it, yeah. it wasn't it didn't go well, <laughs> you know. Right. So there was a, a story in uh, on that Kirby Museum dot org uh, blog. And I'm going to post the, the link for the blog. I got most of or a lot of this stuff from. And it was a story that while Jack was in and basic down there. Uh, Roz, you know, it was like a weekend kind of retreat sort of thing. Uh, Roz was able to bring her sister Anita down down there to, to base, and they were uh, you know, able to go out for a night. And Jack set Anita up with a, a a buddy, you know, of his, and they were taking a bus, or they were getting on a bus to go somewhere, and the bus stopped to pick up uh, a black lady. Got on. And uh, Anita, uh, Roz's sister, stood up to offer her her seat, and the bus driver kicked her and the other the soldier she was with off the bus, and they had to walk back to base. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, yeah. There's, there's not much you can say about it. It's yeah. Yeah. Um, but getting back to to Jack from the Kirby King of Comics, Jack said. My parents weren't happy I was in the army, but they liked the idea of me becoming a mechanic. They'd always thought that was a more stable career choice than comics. But uh, Jack's career as a mechanic in the army's motor pool was a short one, and uh, he was soon reclassified as a rifleman. Well, I was say I saw a thing from his uh, Kirby's um, so, uh, grandson talking about like he had never driven a car in his life. Like, what are they doing putting him, you know, yeah. in the motor pool? <laughs> yeah, and the few people that were unlucky enough to ride with him anywhere said that they they almost died every single time Jack got behind the wheel. Yeah, 
sorry what his son had said my um i i don't know which son said this but he said my father couldn't screw in a light bulb <laughs> yeah and uh he said he would lay under the trucks with his buddy and if somebody walked by they'd bang wrenches at the bottom of the trucks to make it look <laughs> yeah. like they were busy and they kept that up for until they graduated i'm like yeah now that that's some perfect skating you know that that is some, yeah yeah you know, i i commend him as somebody who has skated myself <laughs> yeah that's the way to do it um yeah so overall jack spent about about a year in basic training and the special training and he went he was hoping to stay out of the infantry uh at first they tried anti-aircraft and then ordnance and then auto mechanic which put him in the motor pool and jack said he like Brian just said he used to lie underneath a vehicle and just bang on the wheels for a while, but it sounded like he was working. <laughs> I love it. See, so yeah, like I said earlier, he was removed from the motor pool and he became a rifleman. And uh, while, Kir- while Kirby was in service, our old friend Martin Goodman uh, gave away the rights to Captain America to Republic Pictures so they could make a uh, Captain America serial. Uh, Re- Republic in 1944. Republic produced 15 Captain America serials starring uh, Dick Purcell. Of course, we all know the the story of Captain America, you know, U.S. District Attorney Grant Gardner who fights crime with his trusty gun. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's yeah. what we've, we've been talking about since, like, episode yeah. one. Like, Obviously. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So get with it, people. Nothing to nothing to add there. Um, and of course, Simon and and Kirby's names were you know nowhere on the on any of it. Of course, so I'm, I'm sure they were well paid for it too, though, right? Oh, yeah. Well, like I said, uh, Goodman gave the rights to Republic free of charge, hoping the publicity would make it more than uh, would more than make it worthwhile. Oh, that's so. I think he thought that you know, well, people are going to go to the serials and they're going to go to the newsstand and buy a, a Marvel comic. So uh, it, it may have paid off. I don't know. That just seems like but, bad uh, business. I mean, I, I understand the yeah. concept, but um, I, I, have a, I have a question for you. Did you yeah. did you hear any of his stories of Kirby when he was assigned to the anti-aircraft tra- you know, battalion training? No. Okay, so uh-uh. I, I got two. And, and one of these, the second one, I believe actually made it into one of his real-life comics. Okay. Um, but I'll, I'll tell the first one. So... When he was assigned to the anti-aircraft, uh, tr- you know, training battalion, um, they used to use live fire tar- for target practice, and they um, they basically fight, uh, shoot at these uh, tow planes, or, or the, literally planes would tow stuff okay. for them to practice shooting at. Jesus. <laughs> well, apparently, right, exactly. <laughs> Kirby's gun. Uh, so I'm sorry. Kirby's gun crew was so bad they actually shot down the tow plane. <laughs> and the pilot had a parachute out. <laughs> <laughs> you hit the wrong one there, guys. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that man. went over really well. I never I never found out what kind of like trouble they got for that one, but I'm sure it yeah. wasn't pretty. Uh, and he does another story that there was a small soldier who was put in charge of a... Now, this might have actually been not when he was part of this. This could have been when he was actually a rifleman. But he said a small soldier, like a little guy, he was, he was short, he was put... Yeah. Uh, put it on, on a 50 cal machine gun, but he couldn't control <laughs> it. So it literally starts spinning oh, out God. of control and it's, and it's, uh, and it's pulling the soldier with it. Like the, the gun is, you know, controlling the soldier, not the other way around. And, uh, a sergeant had to basically pull the guy off the gun 
And he said it left, basically left such an impression on Kirby that he worked it into a comic years later. <laughs> like, oh, nice. Like this, and then I forget where I saw this, but it, they actually saw the panel. Like I think it was like on a yeah. clip somewhere, and it showed that actual panel. And I'm like, oh, huh. it's just as he described it. So Nice. Yeah. That's fun. Uh, let's see. So August 17th, 1944, Jack arrives overseas in Liverpool, England, and he's assigned to F Company in the 11th Infantry under the command of, of General Patton. And then by the 23rd, he lands in Omaha Beach in Normandy. Uh, this is... I saw conflicting information on some sites or books that he landed in on... Omaha Beach two weeks after D-Day, some it was two months after D-Day. So if you follow the dates, because D-Day was what, June 6th? Yeah. Or is it 7th? No, yeah, it's June 6th, right? Yeah. I think so. I mean, regardless, we we know that he arrived, uh, at least by a few sources, um, that he arrived on the 23rd, so... Yeah, I'd always so heard I don't know month. why there's so so many discrepancies on when he got there or how much time since D-Day had passed. Yeah, but, to confirm it, to confirm it is June sixth, okay. <laughs> which is my friend's birthday, and I wish her a happy D-Day every time. <laughs> so you'd think I would remember, but um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, I always heard a month. That's what I keep hearing. Huh. But again, it's very inconsistent yeah. with some, especially since they're. There is documents and stuff out there. I'm sure. Yeah, people. I know the uh, the documentary that that I know Brian and I both watched, uh, Kirby at War. Uh, we'll probably post a link to it or tell you where you can find it. But it's very easy to find and and watch. It's only like an hour long, and it, I know it states that he arrives on the 23rd. And uh, the book, like I said, Kirby King of Comics, it states that it's the 23rd. So there are several sources that I found. I think that's. I think we can go with that. It was. It was not. Yeah. He, he didn't land on D Day. He landed sometime no, after. Yeah. No. But uh, they moved quickly across northern France and made it to uh, Verdun by the thirty first. Uh, after Verdun, they began to travel towards Metz, France, and Eisenhower wanted the Americans to split up and take Metz uh, with a pincer movement. You know, have one from the north, one from the south. Sort of, sort of move. Dear Hanya, I'm off again. Somehow, I get a great comfort in writing to you. There are times when the distance between us makes itself felt. So I just dashed me off another letter to you to dispel said feeling. Thought I'd add a cartoon this time to give it a twist. Got me another box of cigars to last me when we get to X. Ditto a box of Hershey's. Was father confessor to a harried medic who had to get some bitching off his chest. Left him enlightened, somewhat calmer, but his problem, like some problems, was laid in the lap of time, which is the only other substitute for John J. Anthony. However, my problem is returning to you, which, with a little effort and luck, I can accomplish. Love you, Jackson. But, uh, yeah, Kirby's F Company was to cross the River uh, Moselle and head north to Metz. And they tried to cross the river at uh, Dorneau. It's a little little village just uh, west of the river. And this is uh, where Jack's skills as an artist uh, come into play. And from the KirbyMuseum.org, uh, Jack would later tell Will Eisner, uh, 
creator of the spirit and just a, another legend in the comic book field. Uh, the only one who took me seriously was my lieutenant. He said, Kirby, you drew Captain America. He says, you're an artist. I said, yes, I'm that kind of artist. He says, well, here's a map. Take the map. We're going across the river tonight. When you see a tiger tank, you put a cross where it's been. And of course, that's what I did. So Kirby had to become a reconnaissance scout and a very dangerous work. Uh, the his lieutenant went with him. It was the two of them, but he, you know, he he didn't have a squad of of soldiers with him to to watch his back. You know, I I find that I find this completely like just out there because you know, like we'll learn somebody like Stan Lee was assigned to you know like the Signal Corps, and then they're like, oh, actually, you wrote comics? Hey, we got, you know, we got this cushy job for you. Hey, Joe Simon, <laughs> yeah. you're in the Coast Guard. You know, you're doing, you know, shore patrol stuff. Wait, you, you're a cartoonist? Great. You're in the, you know, public affairs division, you know, stuff like that. And here is like Joe, you know, Jay, now you got Jack Kirby, and the guy recognizes that he was, Cap, you know, he wrote Captain America, or drew Captain America, and he's like, I got a more dangerous mission for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's just like the fact that they were like, because I, I I mean I'm not going to get into this because we're you know obviously we're not talking about uh you know DC but I I found some articles uh, a long time ago of Jerry Siegel showing up and the press made a big deal of like Superman's coming to uh, you know the uh, army and he was like and it showed him yeah. like it showed him slumped over in front of like a typewriter and he was just doing like mm. you know typing stuff and you know yeah. it was nice, and and it was big you know it was a big to do in the press about it but it's like you know. And yet, here's Jack yeah. Kirby, like, in combat, and you're like, oh, great, they know who I am now. I'm going to go get a nice, cushy job. No, I'm, you're going to get, more, you know, do something way more dangerous. You're going to go and be the well, advanced yeah. party. And <laughs> it's, and it, it gets way more intense. Yeah. It's just, it, it's, it, I mean, that little bit there alone, I'm like, it's, yeah. it, it's counterintuitive to all the other type of stories like that that we keep hearing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so September 8th, a uh, force of 1,200 soldiers made their way across the river in small boats with uh, enemy snipers just bearing down on them. And uh, from again, from the documentary Kirby at War, Kirby's F Company, uh, once across the river, advanced up a hill towards uh, Fort, Fort San uh, Blaise with the intention of taking it from the Nazis. And when they got to the fort, they realized it was an ambush, and they were quickly being surrounded by Germans. Uh, they re they retreated back to the river and had to dig foxholes just to stay alive. Uh, they stayed buried in their uh, foxholes for three days. Uh, from the book, from uh, from Ronan Rose's book, Tales to Astonish, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, and the American Comic Book Revolution, there were long periods where Jack did nothing but wait. He walked a lot. Then he faced situations where he knew at any second it could be curtains. During a ferocious shelling from the enemy, Jack sat in a foxhole and steadied his nerves by sketching in a notepad. But a shell landed near his foxhole and hit one of his friends, blowing his head clean off. Jack returned to his sketch later later on and saw that some of his friend's head was on his drawings. Jeez. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's crazy to imagine, you know, at any moment, one of these stray bullets or uh, even a well-aimed bullet could have completely changed the course of history of of comics you know if jack got killed the mcu you know if it even existed would be completely different oh, i mean yeah. 
just think about the characters that, you know, there are some characters that he would create with Stan, you know, maybe Stan would have come up with some, something that resembles the Hulk and Thor and Avengers and X-Men and Fantastic Four, but would they be around 70 years later? Like, who knows, you know, and if without the MCU, like the face of entertainment would be completely different than it is now. I know that's like compared to someone's life, you know, and, and war, like it's immaterial to think about like media and comics and movies, you know, but it's just, it's crazy to think about how close this guy came to dying, but he didn't. And yeah, that, that goes back, you know, kind of, I have those same thoughts too. And it goes back to kind of what I was saying about like all these other guys. I mean, granted there are, I, I, I got little tidbits of guys that did stuff in the military that was combat related that, that's, you know, that were in the industry. Yeah. But there's so many of these guys that did like desk jobs and they did this. And then right. here's Jack Kirby, you know, he's, he's an infantryman. And and it's yeah. even funnier is it? I mean, if, if everything if that was true, his draft told him for the Navy, and now he ended up not only it, it, not only that is he started out as in the motor pool, and then still ended up yeah. being a rifleman. Like every yeah. step of the way, he was supposed to do something different than <laughs> you know you know be a rifleman, but yet here he is, you know your average yeah. everyday rifleman in you know in World War Two, and and yeah, I mean things it's. It's just, you know what, it almost reminds me of Starship Troopers where, like, you know, the, the one guy's enlisted and they're, like, they're just getting, yeah. it's horrible for them. And then, like, the, <laughs> the officers are, like, playing grab ass and, like, having coffee. Yeah. And it's, like, fun for them. <laughs> like, so that's why I feel like <laughs> like half these, like, comic book guys are, like, having a grand old time, you know, uh-huh, staying being yeah. stationed in D.C. And, and still being able yeah. to do some work. You know, they were still doing work, some of these guys. Oh, right. Like, Simon, I think, once in a while was doing stuff. I mean, like, oh, I think okay. L. Harvey was stationed in dc as well so like if something really needed his inform you know like input they would reach yeah. out to him and he'd make a decision you know stuff like that um Man. stan lee's private stan lee wrote some timely stuff while he was in the service once in a while like and then here's jack kirby almost getting his brains blown out you know it's just insane that's why i'm so fascinated by his story you know yeah yeah absolutely so back to the the in the kirby at war documentary after three days in their holes, they decided it was time to retreat or be killed. Uh, they left their foxholes, and this is when Jack kills his first Nazi with his rifle, and shortly after his second with his knife. Yeah. Which, I mean, I can't can't even imagine. Um, I read or saw somewhere that he ends up killing three Nazis. I don't know where the third comes from, but I... I yeah, the documentary didn't mention that, and I don't have like a yeah. kill count or anything like that. You know, confirmed kills or anything. Um, yeah. But I, th- I think it's at this time. Correct me if I'm wrong, and if I am wrong, you know, we can save it for when it's when it really happened. But there was a. Um, I thought they mentioned this in the documentary, but not in specific detail that I read earlier. Um, something about a tank almost running over oh, his yeah. foxhole. Do you have info on that? Because I'm curious. Um, just what I remember from the documentary, uh, at, at one point when they're retreating from that fort, you know, they're they're running, they're being pursued, they're being shot at. At one point, Jack gets kind of separated, and there's a, this panzer, you know, barreling down on him, and he's about to get run over, manages, just like, just barely manages to get away, and then a, his buddy, I think his name is Mitch, uh, kills another, like, he's he's 
some German soldier has Jack like in his crosshairs, and then his buddy Mitch comes and and kills the the Nazi just in time, basically. Okay, uh, and so then they're able to continue retreating. So I I you know this is years ago I had actually researched this, so I do not have the. I wish I could you know tell you the source, but one one of the things that I had read you know, about was the same thing, you know, the tank, a panzer tank was barreling down on his foxhole. And I thought a documentary said he actually got pinned under it or something like that. Like it went over his foxhole. I I could be mistaken, but I don't know. The one thing that I, that I saw and read and made note of is that the guy, there was a guy either in his foxhole in Kirby's foxhole or in the foxhole next to him stood up, took a shot, and hit the driver right through the slit, mm. and it's like, and Dang. the tank stopped before before getting Jack. And it okay. said it was a one in, yeah. Now the documentary didn't mention that specifically. No, no. But it was like a one in a billion shot. Like the fact that that wow. guy, you know, again, think about that. If this yeah. is a true story, yeah. and this guy yeah, yeah. shot through the slit and saved Jack Kirby's life, think about how that could have changed the war if this guy was like, you know, wasn't yeah. so true. His aim wasn't so true. I mean, that's just insane to me. Uh, one idea that, that was raised in the Kirby at War doc that I think is really interesting is just how clearly, like, after the war, Kirby's art style changes. You know, it's everything he's doing with, with Joe, you know, before the war, like I said, you know, I don't see a lot of Jack's art style in a lot of that Captain America stuff, like... But after the war, like his his style changes, you know, his the way he draws people changes, and something that they kind of touch on in that in that doc is like Kirby sees people differently. He's seen the horrors that humanity can can do to each other. He's he he can draw monsters now. You know, mm, yeah, it's easier for him basically to to draw these you know nasty brutes. Uh, you know that sort of thing. So, but uh, oh, of the uh, the twelve hundred men that crossed that river, only around two hundred two hundred and fifty five make it out alive. So, barely a, a quarter uh, come back alive uh, to escape across the river. And and this was in the documentary. Um, it mentions that they they strip naked or they strip down uh, in order to cross the river. I guess that's just for the weight. Yeah. Of everything they're carrying, you know, they're pitching their, they pitch the rifles, I think, into the river so that the the enemy can't get their weapons. Um, but they're taking off, you know, jackets and, and I guess anything heavy to try and use this guide rope to get across this river. And it's been raining. The water is up. It's running fast. You know, at some point the, the rope breaks and some of the, the troops are carried downstream. They drown like they don't even make it across the river. So just, yeah, just yet another, you know, death right around the corner kind of situation for Jack. But at this point, they retreat back to Dorno, and uh, they're there they're met by General Patton, who expected them to all have been killed. <laughs> then they, they start to travel to Metz, and again, from Tales to Astonish, during another sweep, an old guy with a little gray beard ran over to him. The guy had tears running down his cheeks and was visibly amazed. He met Jack's stare, blinked a few times, and then, in a little thin voice, said, You're Jewish. Yeah, I'm Jewish. Come with me. Jack ran after the little old man, and the rest of his squad followed. 
They rushed down a long road past farm buildings and a factory. Though he wondered if they'd be if they were being led to an ambush, he kept going. I mean, what would the Germans be doing with this little graybeard? He asked himself. They came to a walled-in stockade. The old man pointed. There. There. Jack stopped. He saw dozens of German guards fleeing the structure, jumping over the wall, using any escape route they could find. The Germans knew that an advanced scout usually had a huge division right behind him. While running away, the Germans looked over their shoulders to shout, Fuck you! in English. They all said that by the time. They all thought it was a big insult. I don't think they really knew what that, what that word meant. Uh, when the Germans were gone, Jack and his buddies got to work opening up the stockades. He figured they'd find a few prisoners of war, some of their guys caught in the early fighting. What he saw pinned him to the spot. Most of the in inmates were Polish Jews, who had been working in nearby factories. The place didn't have a name like Auschwitz, but it was a smaller, equally horrific concentration camp. They were mostly women, a few men. They looked at us as if they hadn't eaten for God knew how long. They were scrawny and in tattered, filthy rags. The Germans had left them behind to starve like dogs. Jack watched them leaving their cells and kept thinking, What do I do? Until his squad caught, caught up with him, he just stood there shaking his head and saying, Oh, God. What do you do in a situation like that when you're the, you know, the, yeah. you're, you're an infantry grunt that just comes across something like that, especially something you never expected to see? Band of Brothers yeah. actually really does a really good job of like yeah kind of highlighting that of like what did we just come across like it's it's pretty pretty good seeing the way they do it or you know which is what happened you know but still yeah it's, yeah it's crazy i thought about band of brothers a few times in this entire journey you know researching jack because they were names of places that i know were oh, featured yeah. in band of bastone um, Verdun. Yeah. You know, I think so. It's, I, I don't know if the timing probably doesn't work out right, but it's like, were some of these guys, some of those guys cross paths with Jack? I don't know if, you know, his company interacted with anyone from that same unit or, or whatever, but. Right. Well, like uh, they specifically, so Simon mentions, and I don't know how accurate this is, but I know it was the winter of 44 when. Mm. Kirby was still in, you know, fighting around in the winter of 44, I guess. But it was in December of 44 in Bastogne when the um, Germans surrounded, you know, this was all covered in Band of Brothers. You know, they the, these yeah. guys were there. Yeah. And it was Patton's third army that broke through okay. to, to rescue these guys. And specifically, they call it the whole nuts uh, incident where the response, the commander uh, of the U.S., response to the surrender request was nuts <laughs> and uh oh. and in the patent movie Patton says these guys are worth saving we got to go save them. <laughs> huh. well, band of brothers specifically calls out like hey f Patton, we don't need we <laughs> we didn't need to be rescued <laughs> yeah know? and that was funny and simon is like yeah i'd like to think that you know jack was involved with that i don't know if he really was yeah I, because I, by that point yes pat it's it's close and he was part but yeah. Patton was in charge of the third army not just you know mm -hmm. one little division you know like so f company yeah, yeah. so it's, it's hard to say plus mm -hmm. i think you know you, i'm sure you'll get into it but i think kirby ended up at that point was starting to have some medical issues yeah it's, it's coming up yeah so by now it's late october and it's rainy it's getting colder uh, according to the Kirby Museum site, uh, the Moselle River began to flood, saturating the ground, making it nearly impossible to cross fields without getting stuck. What kind of terrain or conditions? They always appear impressive to the observant eye. 
Last night was murky, chilly, and wet. The fields were barely discernible in the weak, bluish light from the coin-sized moon overhead. Along the vast horizon, a long, thin line of men advanced through the light drizzle, formless, slow-moving objects under their heavy clothing and equipment. The ranks ahead were lost in the gloom. Took plenty of puffing and wheezing to keep them in sight. Kept pace with the machine gun section, with whom the lieutenant and I travel in advance of our mortar squads. This will give you a pretty sketchy, but general idea of the bunch on the move. Featured, the guy you're most concerned with. So with that, he included a little drawing of, of himself, like carrying a spool of uh, wire, of maybe barbed wire, or maybe a com communications kind of cable running across this uh, field. So hmm. I actually um, came across a couple of those sketches that he did. There wasn't uh, too many that I could find, but I think um, it was either Kirby Museum on Twitter or Jeremy uh, Jeremy Kirby. His grandson shared some of them, mm -hmm. and uh, I found two. And then there was a portrait from the Kirby yeah. uh, War, Kirby at War uh, doc. Yeah, and um, and I found that online, and it's it's pretty neat. You know, we'll try like, to we'll try to share all those when you know when the episode yeah. comes out. It's just fascinating. That stuff's completely fascinating to me because mm -hmm. I mean, this is stuff he did like in the midst of you know combat. He's taking a moment to you know either take his mind off of things or just send a nice yeah. little skit it's not necessarily nice but you know a yeah. sketch along with his letters you know i mean he's an yeah. artist and it, <laughs> yeah and it apparently he wrote her every day you know i mean it, it, they talk about it in the documentary that jack was a very romantic kind of guy mm. you know we'll get into that later i'm sure yeah you know in a few years or whatever and, uh, and relative to but and I found some photos of him and, and Roz um, yeah. from wartime. And, yeah, you could tell mm -hmm. he definitely, he, he could, he, he dug her. <laughs> he loved, yeah, yeah, he loved Roz. <laughs> so. so where does that put us? Uh, November 10th, snow began to fall. Oh, uh, and, Marine Corps uh, birthday. <laughs> oh. So I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, according to Jack, uh, France is a terrible place during the winter. One day I took my leg out of the mud and it was deep purple. This was before we had combat shoes. We had plain shoes. I had a battle with my own shoes. I had to break my shoe off. And before I could break the other shoe off, I was out like a light, unconscious. So then for, uh, back to the uh, Ronan Rose Tales to Astonish book. Uh, soon it was the middle of war. Or, uh, sorry. Soon it was the middle of winter. The ground was covered with snow. The high winds made it even colder. In the field, there was no place to sleep but the frozen ground. His outfit was about to move into Bastogne, then head into Belgium and Metz. But much of the unit was withdrawn. The men were beat up. Jack himself had severe frostbite on both feet and legs. Replacements would take over. And then uh, he was taken to hospital in London. Or he was first taken to, to a field hospital and then a hospital in Paris where they, they thought they'd have to amputate. And then eventually he was then taken to a, a hospital in uh, in London. Yeah, I think they s called it out that his like foot like miraculously got better like yeah, in the span of like yeah. a, a day or two when they were keeping an eye on whether or not they needed to amputate it. Which yeah, I th I think well based on what I've found in in the various sources, the documentary made it sound like it happened very quickly. Yeah, that, you know. <laughs> 
But, uh, yeah, he was taken to the hospital in London where he spent several months worrying about his legs. They were completely frozen. Uh, during his stay, he couldn't write to Roz. Um, and, and meanwhile, like, she's, you know, stateside. She's working in a lingerie shop, and she's moved in with her mother uh, just to make things easier. And she looked forward to getting home every day and reading his latest note. Uh, she began to wonder why he didn't write. And then one day, someone from the hospital called her long distance and told her that his feet had frozen via uh, Roz. The first thing that came to came through my mind was, thank God he's okay, she recalled. The next thing I thought was, thank God it's his feet, not his hands. Right. So. What, 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 now, why did, did they say why he couldn't write or was he physically unable to or would they not let him? I, I got the sense that it, he couldn't, that they wouldn't let him. Um, I know in when he stayed in Paris, he he lost like everything he had. He managed to keep a German pistol that he wanted to bring home, mm-hmm. but he lost all the letters that he had from Roz. Like people, just just thieves. Um, in, while he was in the hospital, just took all of his stuff. That's terrible. So, but I don't I don't know that that had anything to do with why he couldn't write. But I, I'm not really sure. Um, but I think until he made it to London, he wasn't really able to communicate with her. Mm. So not really sure why. But uh, it says Jack's legs were as black as his toes. And the doctors considered uh, amputation. I think Again, I think this is in Paris. Uh, luckily, his, his legs returned to their normal color. And the hospital sent Roz a telegram saying he was all right. And then he started to write her again. Mm. November 22nd, 1944. Surprise! I'm in merry old England, again with my Gazula still resting neath comfortable sheets, and my Brogans stuck daringly out in the ozone to defrost in gradual stages. Nice enough place, chow is good, and attendance pleasantly given. I've certainly made the rounds since I last wrote you, and I'm still uncertain as to the extent of this amazing situation. However, with the exception of a dull numbness in the tootsies, and a roomy draining in the joints, I'm still intact and functioning. Love you more than ever. Hope you're not worrying. Please don't, honey. Jackson. <laughs> so then in January 1945, uh, Private First Class Jack Kirby returned to the United States and was shipped to Fort Butner in North Carolina. Yeah, you know what? That's actually my neck of the woods. Is it? Yeah, I, I had to look it up. and it's uh, In the documentary, it mentions Raleigh, but it's actually very close to Durham. Okay. But, I mean, it's all RDU. It's Raleigh-Durham. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like all <laughs> the triangle. So yeah. it's, yeah, I didn't realize it, that's where he was. Yeah. And and the documentary talked about, and I did read it somewhere else, that he was in hospital for a long time and was in a wheelchair for a month or two. Mm. Um, the documentary made sure to say maybe that's where he got the inspiration to put Professor X in a wheelchair. I, I don't know. Maybe. I found I that a that, bit of a stretch. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. there's other people that claim that like they just stole it from the uh, Doom Patrol. So mm. <laughs> it's like, right. yeah. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so he's back in, in the States and um, he spends his remaining six months back in the motor pool. Yeah, because you can't just let the guy out early. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, you yeah, got, yeah. You got to get your time in there, and since he already had yep. motor pool experience. So. But uh, uh, Roz was able to, to visit him uh, while he was there. I don't know how math works, but uh, nine months later, uh, their daughter Susan was born. So the, on July 20th, 1945, Jack was honorably discharged and awarded a combat infantry badge 
a European theater ribbon, and a bronze battle star. Pretty impressive. Yeah. I definitely recommend, if anyone's interested in reading more about Jack's experience, uh, go to that kirbymuseum.org. We'll have a link to the specific, like, his time in the ward uh, post that has so much more information. That's a great, that is a fascinating um, uh, website, and it's got so much, I mean, so so much stuff, like, to dig into there. I mean, I I, I definitely recommend that. And and check out the Kirby at War uh, documentary. Yeah, yeah. It covers covers it quick and entertainingly enough. Um, Yeah, one thing I loved was they have, you know, reenactments you know, re- actors you know reenacting their marches across the the field or whatever and then they animate these little explosions with like Kirby crackle yeah you know with like his art style and so I just really like that and then in some places they'll uh layer over the the war scenes with like images that Jack will later draw in his war comics you know in his Nick Fury, Howling Commandos kind of comics and stuff. So uh, they really go into a lot of like his later works and how all that stems from this guy has seen some shit. Yeah. And they even talk about it. I think it's in that documentary where he said his wife said is the one thing he would talk about if he could is mm. is the war. Like, and that's what he dreams yeah. about. Like, I mean, yeah, I didn't touch on that. The, yeah. the dreams that he has for the rest of his life. Yeah. yeah he'd wake up in a cold sweat. Like you can't go through something like that and not have it affect you, and especially back then, right. there's no like open talking about it. There's sure, no like, sure. hey, go, you know, go get treated for PTSD. They even know what it was mm-hmm. called back then. It was, you know, like yeah. it's just shell shock. Yeah, shell shock. Yeah. Yep, and then uh, and basically everybody just had a drinking problem afterwards. You know, <laughs> I mean, right. I mean that's, yeah. I mean that's, I mean, I'm just, I'm making light of it, but yeah, yeah. I mean that's. You know, he he just it was different, and he just went back to civilian life, and that's yeah. It's, but I mean, I'm just again, I'll say it, I'll say it again. The more I learn about his wartime experience, the more fascinated I am about it. And yeah, I, I've never, I don't want to sound like a jerk, but I was never a huge Kirby fan. Mm. I always, and I'm gonna caveat this. We'll say I'm <laughs> I was wrong, <laughs> and I've since changed. Yeah, but I. You know, when I first got into comics, I was always like, I just don't get why these Jack King Kirby, like he's King Kirby. Uh-huh. I'm like, I, I, I like, you know, and if and if it was ever like, who do you like better, Stan or Jack? It's like, well, Stan, oh, of course, yeah. you know, like that type of thing. And, and the thing is, you know, as a mature adult, both there's room in my heart for both of them. You know, I, the more I learn about Jack Kirby, the more fascinated I am with the man and the more respect mm. I have for him. And yeah. the more I appreciate what he did, you know, and, and I mean, first off with the comic book stuff, you know, I know, of course, a long time ago, I, I came around on the whole, no, <laughs> without Jack, there isn't, you know, there isn't everything yeah. you know, that we talk about here. But th- then I find about like his personal life, you know, his mm-hmm. war stuff. And, you know, some of this is, I've known before, some of this is new, but just the more I learn about him as a person and him as like again like this just fascinates me and i'm just totally impressed with what he's accomplished in his life and what he has done and how he's you know taken his his you know upbringing you know depression era kid 
World War II guy and just turned, you know, just these, you know, fascinating stories and ideas and, mm-hmm. and, and just, um, and I, you know, and I go back and I'm like, yeah, no, just like Jack Kirby is amazing when it comes to his art, sure. you know, and it's just, <laughs> uh, it's just, yeah. yeah, I mean, I just. Well, just the way he can crank out six pages yeah. a day, you know, which is unheard of to, to everyone else who's, you know, maybe get, maybe gets two, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the speed. Yeah. Just, I, I mean, literally everything. And it's just like, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I just, I cannot. I I, re- I mean here we are on a podcast and it's all about talking and I can't put into words, mm. you know how like especially like my feelings about the man have changed throughout the years yeah. and just how much respect that I I wish I could pay to the guy and uh, just watching even some of these like interviews I used to not like I'm like ah, mm. just you know Jack he just you know he can't remember stuff a lot of times he's stuff wrong <laughs> you know yeah and, and then I'm like hey but I hear him talk about this stuff and I'm just like man I wish I could just I wish I could hear more, you know, like, yeah, it's just, yeah, 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 that's pretty great, you know. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to think he was only over there from August to November, you know, mm-hmm. it, and that's not to diminish what he did or what he went through in any way. It's just, it's crazy to think how much he experienced and there's more than what I covered here and what that documentary cover like 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 i said if you're interested there are other sources you can find out more information about jack's experiences and stuff and but yeah it's just crazy that he was only over there for a, for a kind of a brief time but i'm sure it felt like a lifetime yeah well a lot was going on then so <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of stuff could happen in a short amount of time there at that yeah. point yeah so yeah should we uh see what old stan was up to yeah so you know we we started off with jack's original partner and we're gonna let's mm-hmm. pivot to his uh once and future partner <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so stan lee um or, or private lieber <laughs> as we uh <laughs> he would have been known at the time stan lee enlisted in the army in november of 1942 and he served until 1945 he eventually um made it to the rank of sergeant don't have a lot about details of when all this happened <laughs> as a matter yeah. of fact i was watching an interview with him and he he's like was retelling a story and he's like Sergeant Lieber and he's like actually was I a sergeant then <laughs> he goes I don't know <laughs> he goes well, I, I was a sergeant at some point so he goes Sergeant Lee you know so he recounts this thing. I mean but you know, he's guy's like 85 years yeah, old when yeah. he's telling the story you know <laughs> yeah you know it's a long time ago <laughs> yeah but he said he um so he, he said when he when he enlisted he walked up to uh, Vince Fago and I'll get into him in a minute he's like how would you like my job <laughs> <laughs> so Vin, uh, Vincenzo Francis Gennaro de Fago was, um, you know, known as Vince Fago, uh, worked at Timely, and he, but he worked in the animator bullpen, producing the non-superhero stuff that Timely was doing. A lot of Disney-like talking animal stuff. Mm. So he was like, he eventually became like the head animator or the head, you know, yeah. guy. So while Stan was gone, because I think at that point Stan was an editor. Yeah. He assumed the interim title of Timely's editor and art director. And that's basically started in March of 1943, cover date March 1943. And after Lee came back, Fago went on to do independent comic book production stuff. So um, this is the man who basically took over for Stan, you know, when he was gone. Hmm. But um, uh, Stan was uh, assigned to uh, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey for boot camp. 
And it was also the home of the Signal Corps, which is where he got assigned initially when he first yeah. joined up. You know, f- uh, I was familiar with Fort Monmouth. It's still around today, I think. But uh, my, my dad was there for a while when he was in the service, years later. Years after Stan Lee, I should say. <laughs> yeah. There he, uh, you know, Lee, uh, Lee learned a bunch of different things like how to string communication lines together and, and mm. repair, you know, repair them. Um, yeah. You know, stuff like climbing poles. And he says, this is, this is the quote, Stan. I trained to be one of these fellows that goes ahead. <laughs> I should do it. Like, I trained to be one of these fellows that goes ahead and troop, goes ahead of the troops and fixes wires for communication. I, I trained, I learned to climb telegraph poles, string wires, put them ahead of, Put them ahead so they had radio communications. Whatever. I don't even remember what it was, but I was really good at climbing <laughs> telegraph poles. <laughs> nice. I can see that, too. So, yeah. um, And he, he thought that this was um, going to lead to overseas combat, like duty, because yeah. as he was stating... I'm doing, you know, communication lines for these guys as they march ahead. <laughs> so they need to be able to, you know, to talk. Um, but he said he was practically waiting on the pier for a ship to come take him overseas when he got a tap on the shoulder. And some colonel said, you worked in comics? He's like, yes. He goes, well, we have a job for you. <laughs> this is uh, He told this to the Hollywood Reporter in 2016. So, <laughs> um but but you know before he moves on you know to this new job new said job that this colonel has for him he he just did his typical duties that every soldier did you know he did his like yeah he did his uh, perimeter watches we watch him for planes whatever but he he was you know he was in New Jersey and he was talking about it was so frigidly cold when he was there at the time huh. and he said that basically he he just talked about how the the, the the freeze from you know the cold from the Atlantic just basically chilled him to his core, you know. And so, yeah. <laughs> so I can only imagine because it sounds like they you know they, as the U.S. was still gearing up, they weren't really supplying <laughs> the guys yeah. with the proper equipment <laughs> right mm-hmm. away. So, uh, so Lee got assigned to a uh, training film division because they they were like, hey, you're a writer. We need to we need to produce propaganda pieces, basically. You know. Yeah. Training. Yeah, training man. Oh, because that was the big. That was one of the things that Lee talked about himself. There was just such a need to train so many different people into so many mm. different aspects of military life. Sure, not just you know like these are civilians going to start doing every literal job, but also so your job, but also your you know, military decorum and just like just sure. everything. Like they just did everything. So. This new this training film division was based out of Astoria, Queens. They basically ended up buying like a like an old film studio and just re- redid it. Eventually, there was um, other training film divisions because there was, again there was such a such a need for training that they actually had little pop up you know ones around. But this was the main headquarters in Astoria, <laughs> Queens. So you know stands there in New York still. <laughs> but. Um, and they said, well, you know, one of the things that they did is, uh, well, when he got there, he was joined by eight other artists and filmmakers and, you know, other artistic types, if you will. Sure. And they were given the, the nine of them were given the, not code name, but like uh, job description of playwright. And it was, they okay. were the only nine in the army at the time. I've seen yeah. some people question whether or not this is true, but some of the other people that were in that, you know, these nine have mentioned that as well yeah and um and and there is an actual 
description in the technical army manual of playwright. So, so it said <laughs> at the time, the U.S. Army had a formal military occupation classification code 288 for this position. The entry form technical manual 12-427, the military occupation classification of enlisted personnel dated 1944, describes it as the following. Write scenarios and scripts for theatrical, radio, or motion picture production for entertainment or instructions of military personnel or for publicity purposes. Creates plots and sequences with instructional narrative or adapts fictional, non-fictional, or historic material to dramatic form. Bears in mind the characteristics of the medium for which he is writing and forms his presentation and script accordingly. It indicates, no, it's a, <clears throat> indicates desired camera procedure, method of presentation, sound effects, and backgrounds. Civilian experience in writing or adapting scripts or scenario for radio, stage, and motion, motion pictures required. So, that is the official description of a playwright. So, okay. it's, it is... There's no reason to doubt that they, that these guys yeah. were not playwrights in the military. So, do you want to know who some of the nine are? Have you heard who's? Yeah, a, go ahead. I, I know I've I know I've read through Stan's Wikipedia. I feel like I've seen some names there before. So, I, but please, yeah, I don't have all nine, but Pulitzer Pulitzer Prize. I always say Pulitzer Pulitzer Prize winning novelist William Saroyan, TV writers e, Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts. They one of the things that we, they're known for is they created Charlie's Angels, and they mm. met in this you know place. Okay. That's where they met. Uh, Charles Adams, uh, creator of the Adams that's, Family. That's the one. Okay, yeah, yeah. You might know this name, Frank Capra, mm. film director Frank Capra. Uh, for, yeah, Wonderful Life. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, just some nobody named Theodore Giselle. Gazelle. Oh. Seuss. Yeah, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> it's right, the, yeah. it's Stan described it. He was the token nobody of the group. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, because a lot of these guys were already famous, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. And Stan's what, 19, He's like 19. 20? Yeah. I, th- yeah. He jo- I think he joined when he was 19. Okay. I don't know how much time he actually spent in the, in the Signal Corps. It wasn't long. Maybe a couple okay. months. You know, I don't think he was in there very long. Gotcha. Uh, it wasn't long, you know. It didn't take him too long to figure out he was somebody. Mm. Well, not somebody, but he had a different skill set, and they could use it. Sure. Yeah. So, so Stan kind of describes what a playwright one did and what he did. He wrote training films. He wrote film scripts. He's like, I did posters. I wrote instruction manuals. I was one of the great teachers of our time. He said, <laughs> you know, in a, in a very Stan, uh, you know, fashion. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, he. He takes credit for his training manuals and his uh in his in some of his like posters that he came up with. They they won the war, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He even said, you know, he I mean, stands great because he even talks about like, oh, I thought I was gonna win the war single handedly, but then he yeah. And then as an older man, he talks about I did probably win the war because it wasn't for me, <laughs> you know. And uh, <laughs> um, so what you know, let's see what is the stuff he did. Let's see. Yeah, so, you know, being the token nobody, he was basically just the guy that wrote comics, not like, you know, notoriety of anybody else. But one thing that he gets into detail about this in one interview about, you know, why he was so, like, good at this job. You know, it was was a good fit for him. Being in the comic industry, you know, it's a quick turnaround. Yeah. You know, so he's he's fast. But one of the other things that he said is he actually hates the physical form of writing. He (laughs) likes to come up with ideas. He, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, he wants to come up with an idea, but he's like, by the time you actually go to put it to pen to paper, he's like, his brain's already moved on. He doesn't want to like, yeah. you know, he's, 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 you know, 
His 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 hand can't keep up with uh, <laughs> you know, with what his brain's doing with. So he's a song and dance man. He's not a right. Yeah. So so, yeah, yeah. so to give it, um, you know, one of the reasons he he, he was so fast is because he just wanted to get that crap over with. <laughs> he wanted. Yeah. To, so. He apparently was uh, making the other guys look real bad because he sure. <laughs> he was knocking out. In fact, he thought he was going to get in trouble, and they said because they, they called him in, he said you need to slow down. And they were like, oh, I thought your yeah. your work my work was bad. He said, no, no, um, you're making everybody else look bad because it's so <laughs> you're you're not you're you know doing double triple the work that they are. You know, he he knocks something out in a week and it take them you know a couple days and it take them like two weeks. So, right. All right. So he tells one story of you know just one type of thing that he he did was they'd send him around to you know help out with he said this is one of the dumbest things he ever had to do and it was the finance guys were having a hard time getting trained quick enough so guys overseas aren't getting paid because they don't have enough finance guys to come in because you know the training is stalled they're not getting it so stan had it he like came up with this weird like game where he's like ah, oh, you cross this and you can't you can't get anything wrong and if you know if, you, if you're getting wrong you don't move ahead so and they were all like mm. you know finance related questions that he said for whatever yeah. reason it worked and these guys just started getting it and it was clicking so um he's like ah, you know, again i won the war because he got you know the more the morale up of all the gis that weren't getting paid on time and uh, when he's telling the story, there's somebody in the room with him, and he goes, "It's still the same way today." Well, <laughs> the guys overseas not getting paid on time. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so he said, but he said the uh, finance guys actually had a really low morale themselves because they knew they weren't heroes, as he put it. <laughs> you know, they oh, were just sure. they were just having guys. Um, so he they wanted Stan to come up with a marching song for him. So he's like, <laughs> "All right." So as a goof. He he set the uh, he made up a marching song for them set to the song of the the Air Force you know Wild Blue, Blue Yonder song, okay. So he's like, off we go into our office yonder at our desk <laughs> morning till night, far away from any battles thunder we pay off the fellows who fight. Nice. Clerks alert, guarding our books from blunder. Payrolls form clutter the floor. We write compute. Sit tight to boot. Nothing will stop the fiscal director. <laughs> He's like, they loved it. He's like, they march around the field singing it. He goes, I did oh, it as a man. goof. <laughs> um, it's, it's, as good of a job as I just did for everybody, I think it'll be much better if I uh, if we let Stan sing it in his own voice. <laughs> yeah. To get the full effect. You're the few people in the world who will hear this song now. <laughs> Here's what I wrote for them. And they loved it. <laughs> Off we go into our office yonder <laughs> at our desk morning till night. <laughs> Far away from any battles thunder, we pay off the fellows who fight. Clerks <laughs> <laughs> alert, guarding our books from blunder, payroll forms clutter the floor. <laughs> we write, compute, sit tight to boot, Nothing will stop the fiscal director. <laughs> and he said, but probably the biggest contribution, I'm sure you've maybe heard this before, uh, Travis, is of his uh, oh, yes. his fight against uh, the, the real enemy of, of, of a soldier, mm-hmm. and that's uh, against venereal disease. <laughs> that's right. He said, so, so basically, he said they had these pro stations that were set up on base. And it was called a pro station because it was supposed to be a prophylactic station. But sure. it's 
it's not exactly what you think. It's not like you go get a you know a condom before yeah. going to see <laughs> a, a lady sure. of the night or whatever or just some rando. Um, yeah. No, it's your it's, best girl, right? Your best girl, right? Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> well, so he said basically what would happen is they wanted guys after. They went and met it with a uh, foreign lady, as they put it, you know, <laughs> woman overseas, um, mm. to go get your yourself checked out, and uh, yeah. and so what they he goes basically they would like not sterilize because but they disinfect you. He's like it was very painful, <laughs> but oh. yeah, I can only I'm not going to get into details of how they might you know disinfect yeah. said person who, mm. but um uh, you know but they were syphilis and gonorrhea and stuff like that were stuff that was you know uh, uh the bane of of you know soldiers everywhere so sure he said so basically what they did is you knew that this was a pro station based on if there was a green light like a green light above it or something like that so he said he came up with one poster and it was uh and of course he acts it out too and he's like it's the guy went well, going over to the door you know it's a pro station it's got a green light and he does his little thing he's like vd not me (laughs) (laughs) and he's like i think that won the war for us you know (laughs) yeah yeah i mean without that and and him telling the story is is just great because you know he's so animated and uh the thing is like i couldn't find any you know pictures of that oh really yeah i I mean i I mean i guess i could have you know maybe i didn't do a good enough search but i really wanted to find one because i'm like yeah I've heard that story through the years sure. and, and it's, it's, it's a good one. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But yeah, at some point he, um, you know, that was just the type of stuff that Stanley did. I mean, he just wrote uh, eventually, like, as I said, they, they created all these different like training film divisions throughout the country. And he started yeah. bouncing around to different duty stations where that needed training films. So he didn't stay in, in Queens, you know, forever. Um, in fact, at one point I thought he went to DC, but, um, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, so he his his service ended in 1945, and makes sense. Yeah, so you know he we went back to civilian life and all that. But um, it was I've seen, so in 2000. So in, there's two separate things that are very close to each other as a as an older man that the military kind of bestowed some honors on him. And so in in uh, 2016, November 2016, at the Rhode Island Comic Con, a bunch of military branches honored Stan Lee for his service. It was on Veterans Day, you know, huh. when they did this Comic-Con. They, the Army came in, pretty much everybody. In fact, Stan sure. was, you know, funny because the Marine Corps lead gave him one. He's like, oh, my best friend, he's a Marine. he was a Marine. He goes, wait till <laughs> I tell him what they gave me. <laughs> but then he's like, then, you know, this is great. And the thing is, I, I watched this, and I was just like, man, I miss Stan. He is just, yeah. He's an old man. You could tell he's very old, but he was. You could tell he was honored by this, and he, of course, he's joking about it and he's self-deprecating. And it's just like, it's just so great. Yeah. So, um, it was just really nice to watch. You could tell he was genuinely touched by the fact that you know, um, he was being honored for his military service. Sure. And so in in 2017, service members of the Joint Base uh, Lewis McCord inducted Lee into the Signal Corps Regimental Association and gave him an honorary membership in the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Infantry Regiment because of his time in the Signal Corps. 
Mm. Uh, they said once they found out that he had actually started out his service in the Signal Corps, they they made him an honorary member and bestowed him. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, and I, so I remember when that happened too, and that's um, that was pretty pretty cool too. And I and yeah, I think I think again it was one of those things where he appreciated <laughs> being recognized for his. Uh, you know, early military career. Everybody sure. always talks about his his time as a playwright. You know, <laughs> so uh, I mean that was that was stands. You know, I'm sure there's more stories out there, but that oh, was, sure, that was like some some of the highlights of yeah. Stanley's time. Hmm. Should we? Uh, I know we have. I know that there are there are more people that went from timely or just from comics in general, um, and we're not gonna necessarily deep dive into all of them and some of them we couldn't you know some of them that we'll touch on barely had a a a line in a wikipedia page about them that just said and then they went to war and then they came home from war yeah so (laughs) yeah it's it's i'm surprised there isn't more information out there for people but um well I mean, yeah, I, I mean, you know, a couple guys that we've talked about in this podcast already, uh, one Carl Burgos, you know, of course, of yeah. the Human Torch fame. He was in, um, it's funny because uh, in 1942, he he left for his service. I, I actually heard he got drafted. So according mm-hmm. to Joe Simon, Bill Everett, Carl Burgos, and Sid Shores were all drafted. Yeah. So um, I saw well, that Carl he, went to the Signal Corps as well, right? He ended up in there, yes. So okay. he it said he left for service, and it was um, it mentioned the army, but then it said Air Corps. But the Air Corps is the army oh, at that time. Okay. Uh, but he yeah. did some infantry training and was sent overseas as a rifleman. But at some point, was transferred to the Signal Corps, and then to an engineering division. So there's like it's just all high level stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he was actually part of the American Occupation Force a year after the war ended. So I don't see when he got out, but he yeah. must have, if 1942, if he did, well, so, yeah, I mean, like I said, he left in 42, but if he was a year after the war, and that's, you know, 45 or 46, so, yeah, you know. So Bill Everett, another one, February 1942, <laughs> he joined the Army. I saw that he went to OCS, which is Officer Candidate School in Fort uh, Belvoir. Um, and then again, very little on him, but he, re- in 1944, he returned home from the European theater. He was sent over to the Philippines to fight in the Pacific theater and then eventually returned, you know, to civilian life in 1946. I found that funny that, you know, he, they sent him over to the P- Pacific theater. Like I know, I know that that was the intention after, yeah. you know, another name Sid Shores is just somebody that has come up in the past. He was, um, he was an art director at Marvel. He inked Kirby a bunch. Well, we've, I've seen, we've seen him, his name pop up on some of the stories, I think. Yeah. Um, but he joined the army in 1944, 1944. He saw action in France and Germany, and he was also serving Patton's third army. Same as, uh, same, okay. same regiment as Jack. However, um, they didn't know that at the time. They found out about it years later that they were. Okay. Yeah. I thought, yeah, I mean, it's neat, neat stuff. He was wounded in France in um, 16 December 1944. And I, I saw somewhere he got four Purple Hearts. So wow. I, I mean, I wish I knew what for. <laughs> yeah. And it said it took him four months to recover from his injury. And then afterwards, he was signed to an engineering outfit. Again, he was a, he was a part of the occupation force in Germany up until January afterwards. 1946. Yeah. Okay. So he got out in 1946. Um, I've got one on uh, on Dick Ayers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dazzling Dick Ayers. I uh, served three years and three weeks in the Army 
in uh, World War II and spent 21 months deployed overseas, hmm. uh, where he's where he was a radio operator on a bomber. Oh wow! And uh, he also contributed his artistic talents, painting nose art for many planes. <laughs> so nice. Well, yeah. Speaking of somebody that did uh, paintings and stuff for in the military, there's Alan Bellman. Um, he was an artist on Captain America. He did backgrounds for Sid Shore a lot of times, so he did the background. And he's, you know, he's he's just done multiple work for Timely, you know. Yeah. Submariner, all Young Allies, all that good stuff. He joined the Navy in 1943. His duty was painting insignias, <laughs> and he was um, let out shortly after, honorably discharged because he had an illness. It doesn't say what what illness it was. One guy we talked about briefly in our time, and it was Mickey Spillane. Oh, sure. He was part of the, well, I forget exactly. He was at Timely for a little bit there. What did he do? Oh, he joined the Army Air Corps in December 8th, 1941. Uh, so one day after Pearl Harbor, he signed oh, right wow. up. Yeah. And he was a fighter pilot and a flight instructor. And I'm sure there's hmm. more information on, on him if you really want to track it yeah. down. Because, you know, um, I just didn't didn't jump too much into him. Um, George Tuska. And we haven't talked about yeah. him, but he is known for, he was an artist on Iron Man for 10 years. Okay. Yeah. And, I know the name. Yeah. For he, sure. We'll talk about him more coming up, I think. But, um, yeah. you know, he, he was an artist for Marvel, you yeah. know, not necessarily timely. So, you know, uh, but anyways, he was drafted in 1942 into the army. He was stationed stateside drawing military plans. <laughs> and then he was nice. honor, honorably discharged after a year of service. It does not say why. Um, there's somebody else. There's somebody I haven't heard of it um, before, but he was he's a timely guy. Is Sam Glans Glansman? He was um, hmm. he worked at Funnies. He worked at Centaur. He worked at Harvey DC, and eventually made his way to Marvel. So huh. definitely a timely guy. But um, yeah, you know, it, it, you know, doesn't sound familiar. No, but he, but uh, uh, and I, I honestly I wish I could remember where I found his name where where yeah. I came across it. But he ended up. What he did for Marvel is he ended up uh, contributing a handful of stories to uh, the Marvel Comics black and white adventure magazine Savage Tales in uh, hmm. in the eighties, and he did uh, the Marine Corps series Semper Fi and a few issues of the Nam. But he hmm. did a graphic novel in nineteen eighty seven called uh, A Sailor's Story, which is more or less a true account of his time when he served on the USS Stevens during World World War Two. Yeah, he was he was in the Pacific Theater on the destroyer USS Stevens, discharged in 1946, and he kept um he kept a diary the whole time he was on, so he was able to turn oh, that wow. in a sketchbook, and that became uh, material for a lot of his work later on in life. Sure, uh, right Gene, on. Gene Colon, um, ah, worked on you know Daredevil, Daredevil, yeah, yep, Howard the Duck, Tomb of Dracula, <laughs> um, a big 70s Marvel guy. Yeah, yeah, he attempted to enlist into the USMC. Uh, but he was underage. His father prevented him from doing it. <laughs> uh, but he eventually enlisted into the Army Air Corps at the age of 18 or 19. But the war ended before he finished boot camp. And he was supposed to be an aerial gunner, but they shipped him to the Philippines. Uh, I did see that he reached the rank of corporal, and um, he drew stuff for the Manila Times. He won some art contests over there, and then he just returned to civilian life in 1946. So he, he, he uh, avoided some... Some of the combat stuff. Yeah. Um, Steve Dicko, name we'll talk about mm. at some point. <laughs> I, always, I always forget that he served. Yeah. Um, Doesn't seem like the type. 
you know, oh, based know. on what I know about Steve Ditko. I feel like I have some wrong assumptions about the man, but it's just <laughs> his persona, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, he was. Um, he joined in October 26, 1945. So, uh, oh wow, in the U.S. Army, he did most of his service in post post war Germany, and he entered when he was. I mean, I don't know what he did, but one of the things he did while in is he uh, drew comics for the army newspaper. And then it's just, <laughs> like, I, I remember researching this. It said he, um, he used the GI bill to go to art school, um, okay. school of visual arts. And, uh, after, and he actually, he took, he took a class with his idol, Jerry Robinson, who, okay. Yeah. He's a, he's not a comic guy. He's like a Batman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I had some, a whole bunch of stuff on DC guys, but you know, we're not going to talk about them today. <laughs> uh, Will Eisner, he, he wasn't technically timely, but you know, he, he sure. was working for uh, Martin Goodman right before Simon and Kirby, so uh, mm-hmm. yeah. But he was drafted in late '41, uh, maybe early '42. Was given about six months to clean up his, his affairs before he was shipped out. <laughs> Which, <laughs> so I guess he got some sort of deferral then. I guess if you yeah. probably, and uh, he was assigned to the camp newspaper uh, at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds, mm. and he was uh, involved with using comics for training training purposes. Okay. And uh, he actually became a warrant officer, which is kind of that um, middle ground between, you know, an officer and enlisted. Okay. He ended up developing a publication called the Army Motors, um, did cartoons. It was basically something that, like, spoke to GIs in their language, you know? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Yeah, stuff like that. He was stationed at the Pentagon for a while. Um, Yeah, a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mori Kuramato, he is he's somebody that that you know, we might talk about. I got this from Sean Howe's book, the you know okay. Untold Tales of Marvel. But he basically was one of these guys that um he just was a basically a a staff guy that just could do it all, you know. Okay. But he's of Japanese descent, and one thing I thought is he taught Jim Shooter production work. So like he just he worked for. Mm. He worked for Timely, you know, or Timely Marvel for like 20 years on and off. Like, he's just one of those guys. Okay. But anyways, so he was, I, so I, I read this somewhere that he was in the army when Pearl Harbor happened, but he was kicked out because of his Japanese ancestry. Oh. However, and then, and then, so this is all in Sean, Sean Howe's book. And it said, and on Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th, he would wear a leather cap and throw paper airplanes at passerbyers. <laughs> huh. So, um... You know, again, he was Japanese descent. It was like a big thing. He would just mess mess with them. So that was one version of his story. And then I saw another story, I think, on comicbookresources.com. And I thought it was on the Comics Should Be Good blog that referenced somebody else who knew Maury and, and told stories of his time that he was actually in the uh, four, 440, this, um, what was it, the 442nd? The, the same division Mr. Miyagi is was from. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, you know, the most decorated, uh, yeah, yeah. Div, you know, div, division or whatever. So, and it was made up of all Japanese, you know, descendants. Right. So I, it said that he was actually in that and a lot of people didn't talk about his time. Okay. But then the, just the whole point of that article was, is that basically he, you know, here he did, you know, some really, you know, heroic stuff in like World War Two and all these people in the bullpen treat him like garbage because he was like Japanese. Wow. So they were like, Oh yeah, you know, we you bombed us and then uh, and it wow. really and it really bo- you know, bothered him. But I'm like and I even reached out to 
the the author of the of the thing to say, hey, well, in this book they said this, so there's got to yeah. you know like, and they never got back to me because I was curious. Sure. I, mean, I was legit like, what's the true story? Because one gives yeah. an impression that you know he. He was he was his he was the one actually doing the joke. The other, you know, mm-hmm. you could look at it as like there's probably a middle ground somewhere. You know sure. what I mean? Where it's like maybe he tried to take the piss out of them by getting them first. You know, but yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same, or maybe it really did bother him. You know, but at the same time, yeah. You know, I don't know. So when I first read that, I was like, oh, that's really funny. Like, yeah, it's something I would yeah. do. Like, you know, and then when I read this other article, I'm like, oh, if that's true too, then I feel bad for him. <laughs> like, it'll be like yeah. what's the truth? <laughs> but either way, the guy mm. served <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and he was part of Marvel. So I just wanted, he, we, he deserved mention. And then Francis Huron, um, mm. Francis Huron, we know why, because he is credited as one of the creators of the Red Skull. And uh, he joined the army in 1942. Wrote for the Stars and Stripes. He, that's where he met Kurt Swan of DC Comics fame, and the, the guy known for like drawing, you know, Superman and all that. Superman, and he, was, yeah. he encouraged. In fact, it was Francis Huron that encouraged Swan to uh, submit his work to DC. So without them two meeting in the military, Superman as we know him wouldn't have been <laughs> the same in the comics. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's some of the like the rapid fire kind of tidbits I have for some of the um, other people that have worked through Marvel and time and through the years that served in World War II, and yeah. I know there's probably others that were completely leaving oh, yeah. off. Yeah, um, I've I kind of went down that path looking for other you know people to talk about or just you know looking for more information, and I went down a path that I, I wasn't expecting to go. Um, instead of finding out more about, you know, timely artists turned soldiers, I found out about a comic book artist by the name of L. Rene. And uh, L. Rene was born Lily Rene uh, Wilhelm on May 12, 1921. And she was born in Vienna, Austria, to, a well- to well-to-do Jewish parents. Um, I found a, an article in, in Newsweek from 2010 and it says that in 1939, at 14 years old, her parents put her on a kin- kinder transport. So just a transport for children. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, she arrived in Leeds, England, uh, with the family's expensive Leica camera slung around her neck. And she was wrapped in a like a snow white coat. And she said, uh, like a princess coat with a stand-up collar, according to Lily. Uh, she found herself in Leeds, not knowing if her parents were alive. Uh, she was quickly put to work as a servant, a caretaker. She was nurse to a German general's children that I, I'm assuming he sent to England. I, I don't think the, the German general was there. She worked at a uh, at a hospital as a candy striper whose dorm says candy striper whose dorm crawled with rats and whose job was to bring the newborn babies down to shel- to a shelter when the air raid air raid sirens blasted. Uh, so two years of this went by before she uh, received word from her parents uh, that they made it to America and uh, that she was going to be able to join them. So she makes it to New York. Uh, she's reunited with her parents. She has to live with them in this small apartment with you know other refugees. And uh, from uh, Wikipedia, found a, in a 2006 interview, she explained, uh, at the time I was painting Tyrolean designs. I don't know what, 
I looked up Tyrolean, I think it's some type of German art, uh, Tyrolean designs on wooden boxes. And then I got a job on the 46th floor of uh, Rockefeller Center at Rice Advertising Agency. They paid me 50 cents an hour to draw catalogs for Woolworths. <laughs> and so I was making some money uh, too, and I was going to night school. And I know she was doing some modeling at this point, I think for some of the department stores. And then her her mother saw an ad in a, in the paper for comic artists. And so she went to the comic book publisher Fiction House, uh, which we're going to have to at some point get more into Fiction House. This this company seems amazing. Um, they hired more women artists, and they hired the first black comic book artist like at this time, like nineteen you know forty two, forty three. I'd really like to know more about Fiction House, but uh, yeah. So got hired on at Fiction. Fiction House, um, and she was the only woman who drew covers for Fiction House. And during the 1940s, she was a regular artist for the post-apocalyptic science fiction series *The Lost World*, <laughs> uh, supernatural series *Werewolf Hunters*, and *Senorita Rio*, which is a comic about a beautiful counter spy for the U.S. Uh, living in Brazil, masking masquerading as a Brazilian nightclub entertainer so kind of the uh alias you know of her day just but uh, uh from what i can tell she still lives in in new york because that's right this badass lady is still alive hmm. and just turned 101 uh, a few days ago as of this recording wow yeah so uh, i mean she she kind of left comics like in the 1950s and you know kind of left that that world behind but i just thought it was really interesting just to find out because i kind of i started thinking about if, if all the men are going overseas is this like a league of their own type situation where they're bringing in artists to kind of fill that gap you know because maybe not every company has a like, has a backlog like what joe and jack put together like like they did for dc so it's like they they have to have be employing you know um, other people to to kind of fill that need so and i found like uh, she wasn't the only woman kind of doing this uh there was nina albright uh fran hopper uh june mills who created the uh a character who predates wonder woman uh miss fury miss fury appeared in newspaper comic strips and then would later get uh, those newspaper strips were collected in uh, some timely comics uh, later on, so so just some uh, some cool women who kind of helped over here, just kind of keep comics going. Yeah, I think uh, I read somewhere that you know L. Harvey obviously is not timely, but you know he has his own comic company at this point, I think. And um, it was his, you know, when he was in the service, his brother and his wife took yeah. over. I think his brother became art director, and I think this is all from Simon. Actually, I think we're getting this from Simon. He said his brother didn't know anything about art. <laughs> like he was like, I don't know, like how he was the art director, but his basically his wife kept the company running, you know. And uh, they yeah. said, and but I think Al was at in D station at DC at the time, so okay. he was available if they needed like to check sure. out something super important from him. But uh, <laughs> but but for the day to day operation stuff, it was his wife that ran it. Huh. Right on. I think I don't really have anything else prepared. Um, 
Brian, I think you're also tapped as far as people to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think we've, I think we went through a gambit of people. Obviously, there's yeah. more. You know, if anybody found this as fascinating as you know, I have. I mean, there's a lot of resources out there. Unfortunately, I don't think some of these people didn't get their due the way, say, sure. a Kirby did. You know, um, Kirby's got a good. Yeah. You know, his family's really good about keeping his mm-hmm. legacy going, his memory going. They got the Kirby Museum, all that good stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, not everybody has that. So, um, you know, it's, it's yeah. always neat to find the tidbits that we can find about some of these guys. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's more out there that we didn't touch on. So I, Yeah, this you know. was a, a tip of the iceberg kind yeah. of thing. And we knew going into this one that, you know, we're not going to cover the entire war, you know. I mean... And after this, um, we're probably going to do kind of like we did the episode just before this, kind of a grab bag, kind of uh, pick some 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 various uh, issues that will be set during the war, just after the U.S. kind of enters the war. You know, we 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 don't know what it's like to we don't we don't know what it's like to see. Captain America or Human Torch or Namor fighting alongside uh, U.S. soldiers in the war. Now that the war has started, um, we'd like to see just a few examples of what Marvel Timely Comics um, kind of are are like during the war. Yeah, they've been fighting fifth columnists and saboteurs. Are they going to now start fighting Nazis and and Japanese army proper? You know, are they going to go overseas? Um, I'm, Dare I say yes? They I assume are, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but let's see how that changes, and let's you know let's let's hit some of our our, our people we've been talking about, our Captain America's yeah. our name, or see see what they do. Maybe uh you know maybe we'll find some gems in there. We're gonna try and get a hold of that All Star. What is it? All Star Squad. Uh, all Winter Squad. All Winter Squad. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the proper. First, the real team you know, up. real team up. Not the, you mean basically not the tech the story in- that we covered? Do you, you yeah, think that was yeah. proper? No. <laughs> uh, basically, I, I want, I want, you know, I want to read a story about the invaders, you know, yeah. Captain America, Bucky, Human Torch, Toro, Namor, maybe, I don't know, I forget if there were a couple more of them. Wizard. Wizard was Wizard. Wizard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, uh. I, I, we don't know what, at what point some of these other people join, but like yeah. the original Black Widow helped out with them, and you mm-hmm. know um, Miss America. I can't remember. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we'll get. Yeah, we'll, wanna, we'll find that and yeah, track it down. So yeah, we're still in, in the midst of war. You know, we want to get kind of kind of on the other side of 1940s era war war you know timely era soon, but uh, I think we still want to do some some of the uh, the books set during wartime yeah so. we we uh so that should be coming up next yeah we learned what the the creators did now let's war- learn what the characters did during the war yeah 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 so yeah you got that that's to look forward to i'm gonna try to post all the relevant links to kind of the stories behind the or the sources for where we found a lot of this information um again that kirby at war documentary uh the kirby museum.org has a ton of information um several other sources that that we'll share and then uh hopefully maybe post some pictures i know there are tons of pictures of kirby i know that there's a some stuff from uh 
Joe Simon, you know, his mm-hmm. kind of war wartime war era. So maybe we'll start flooding the Baxter building break room with, you know, just some some of those photos. Oh, and I do want to mention the uh it's a really interesting Facebook account. Yeah, speak speaking of timely and war. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's um it's literally timely slash Marvel Comics and World War Two. So it's this Facebook account where they'll just post, you know, relevant uh, we've shared plenty of them, you know, from their page into the 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 break the Baxter Building break room. So you may have seen these before, but it'll just have little tidbits of information when it was released, and or it might just be a picture from like literal wartime, you know. With so it's just just an interesting page to follow. Yeah, I recommend it. I I, I get a kick out of some of the goofier stuff that they post. You know, like your knockoff Captain America stuff. I always joke I'm going to cosplay as that because it's usually just somebody in short shorts and a big flag, <laughs> you know, like or um, you know, or uh, again they they sometimes give you some detail behind World War Two and yeah, um, yeah, it's a fun it's a fun page, and it's definitely yeah. it's the stuff we're talking about right now. So right. share the love. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it for this one. I hope you've listeners. I hope you've enjoyed you know what we've been able to share about uh, a couple of these people check back with us uh, next time we'll do some comics centered around the you know u.s actually being in uh, wartime uh, with these uh, costumed heroes so i guess you can find us on uh, twitter and instagram at marvel events pod and remember as always vd not me not me I'll tell you another thing I did that won the war single-handedly. Um, I don't know if I can say that in front of a baby. <laughs> they were having a trouble with venereal disease. A lot of the guys overseas. And they wanted the guys to go to what they called a pro station, prophylactic station, and make sure that they were taken care of after they had knowledge of a foreign girl. So I was told to do a, pe- a poster that would remind them to go to these pro stations. I did the simplest poster in the world, showed a GI walking into a pro station like this. VD, not me. Come back next time for the continuing journey with Travis and Brian. Until then, join the conversation over at facebook.com slash groups slash Marvel Events Timeline. On Twitter and Instagram at Marvel Events Pod or email the show at marveleventspod at gmail.com.